corrupting an election to keep oneself in office is perhaps the most abusive and destructive violation of one's oath of office that I can imagine. The words of Senator Mitt Romney. And this is The Guardians of the Republic. Hello, I'm Patrick Murray from the Monmouth University Poll, and my co-host is Ian Kahn from the TV series Turn, Washington Spies. On this episode of the podcast, we look at the challenges facing the Republic this week. We will cover other news in our Hot Take segment and wrap with our Guardian of the Week discussion. Please make sure to subscribe and give us a rating in your favorite podcast app. Uh, But Ian, before we get into our show, you did something a little different than we've done in our past 27 episodes with that quote at the top of the show this week. Yeah, every week we start uh, with a quote of the week by General Washington or President Washington, one of those, and it sort of helps to uh, contextualize, tries to contextualize what we'll be talking about on the show. And this week when I was watching uh, Senator Romney's speech, I was so taken Uh, And that line in particular, I was so taken by that I put it at the top and I said, I think we should open with uh, with Romney. And you you agreed. You thought that it was appropriate. Yes, I think so. Um, And we'll be talking a lot more about uh, Mitt Romney throughout this episode. Uh, But why don't we get to the challenges this week? Yeah. Uh, So so we're going to talk. We're going to talk about three things, I think, today. So the impeachment vote itself, the State of the Union address and then Trump's reaction after he was acquitted. So let's start with. The impeachment vote. It came down almost as expected. Uh, you know, Romney's speech and the way he gave it, and it was really just something. Uh, I think the only thing that we weren't sure about was what some of those uh, vulnerable Democrats would yeah. do. All right, so the uh, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Doug Jones from Alabama, Kirsten Cinema from Arizona, particularly Manchin and Jones, who are uh, up for uh, re-election uh, this year, uh, but they all. Uh, towed the party line, as it were, and voted for impeachment, yeah, or even, for, for removal. Even more than towing the party line. And I think that Mitt Romney had something to do with that. I, that's why I think that Romney's move this week is so absolutely historic and gives the, the you know the, the republic that we called brain dead last week or that you called brain dead last week more of a, a little bit more alive. Is had he, had he not done that and had he said, well, you know, we weren't able to get witnesses, so I'm just going to, I'm going to tow the party line. I do believe that some of the Democrats would have gone the other way with it. But once once Mitt Romney voted to convict President Trump for high crimes and misdemeanors, it really gave these three centrist Democrats in very difficult situations really the freedom to convict as well. Because if a Republican is going to do it, and and the, the, the dynamics shift so completely, because otherwise what would have happened was you would have had a bipartisan acquittal. That's what it would have been. Now, it's an acquittal nonetheless. But the fact that you now have a bipartisan conviction with no Democrats going the other way, it's a different picture for President Trump. And I think that's part of why he's so mad. But but on the other hand, Democrats are so in lockstep. I mean, and I'm talking about Democratic voters in lockstep with um, impeaching Donald Trump that even though if you're a state like West Virginia or Alabama, and I think for Doug Jones, he probably thinks... He's, he's not, not going to win anyway. anyway. Yeah. Right. So, so why don't you just, you know, make sure that you're you're voting at the same way and the same conscious as as the members of your own party. Uh, but you know, you met, you pointed out the one thing about this impeachment, which was it was a bipartisan uh, vote to 
convict. And that that did not happen in the past two impeachment trials. Yes, this is the very first time that someone from the president's party has voted to convict. That has never happened before. I do believe that guardian of the republic, Mitt Romney, will be remembered always for for this courageous, remarkable vote in in direct opposition to Susan Collins. And I want to say, uh, watching Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, I had a very odd reaction. I had to watch the guilty, not guilty. So, you know, it's a very wide shot. It's not fun to watch. Like, if you, if you were doing it for reality to be like the State of the Union, we would have had a close-up shot on every senator and really got into, you know, the look in their eyes. We didn't really get that. But I had an awkward, weird response. I'm sitting here watching, and I just laughed. I just laughed at the absurdity of this. That Lisa Murkowski can say, well, you know, I, I didn't vote for witnesses because I didn't want to put John Roberts into that situation. And Susan Collins says, I did vote for witnesses because, of course, we see that there's something really wrong here. But then to say, well, since we don't have any more witnesses, it's really not that big of a deal. Let's, we can move on. Let's acquit. Outrageous on their part. Just outrageous. Yes. Uh, and Susan Collins in particular um, has, on multiple occasions, uh, from the Kavanaugh hearing to uh, the Kavanaugh uh appointment to this has shown herself to either be a, a duplicitous or a fool. No, duplicitous. And you had this because I called yeah. you and I said, hey, look, Susan Collins is voting for witnesses. And you said that's a complete political calculation on her part. You didn't you didn't buy it for a second. No, no. She called for witnesses because she knew she knew that it wasn't going to happen. And then when she voted to acquit, she said, well, Donald Trump's lo- lo- learned his lesson. Right. And that's why I say <laughs> she's, either a, fool, she's no. either a fool or du- duplicitous. Comple- and I'm now with you. When I saw that, that he's learned his lesson now, and then he was asked, have you learned your lesson? He said, what did I need to learn from? A perfect phone call? Yeah. He, he, did learn a, he did learn a lesson, and the lesson was, I can get away, I can get with, away with Yep. Yep, I can get away with it. And Susan Collins, I, I had this great feeling of passion of wanting to sort of leave home and just go to every Senate state where there was a, 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 a race going, and just sort of get up and scream and say, Cory Gardner, Susan, all of you, Tom Tillis, you all are the vote that stopped this from being, that, that kept this from being a true trial. Because if any one of you had decided to vote that way, Lisa Murkowski also would have voted that way, and the world would be different. But the way that they've done this, it's, it's awful. It is the, it is, uh, if, if this is the death knell of the Republic, um, then we can point fingers at exactly these people. Ben Sass, man, I, I know I talked about Ben Sass a lot last week. When Ben Sass stood up and said, not guilty, this is what he said. He went, not guilty. <laughs> he went low on the knot. This is an actor thing. And then he really stressed the T-Y on guilty. Go back and check it out. He knows that they're guilty. They all know that he's guilty. And they're letting it go for their own personal favor. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. Right. So uh, again, and I'll harp on this again because I, I, I did it last week. I've done it pretty much since the impeachment process started, is you gave them an easy out, though. Uh, uh, remember, even Mitt Romney voted to acquit on the second charge, which is the contempt of Congress charge. And as I said, Patrick Philbin, the deputy counsel in the White House, I think did a very good job of laying out a reasonable case for why you would have to acquit. Donald Trump on that because he wasn't given the chance to commit con- contempt. Right. Uh, right. And I, I think that's fine. Um, but on the other charge is that, again, you ended up with and it became about this one 
Ukraine call and you gave people like Linda Collins, uh, Linda Collins, Susan Collins, the ability to say, oh, it was just just this one thing. So I'm sure he learned his lesson and will <laughs> never do it again. Whereas this, as we all know, this is just one incident in a pattern of behavior yes. that is deep in the Trump White House of asking foreign entities, inviting foreign entities in uh, to interfere in our election. And that if there isn't anything, if there's anything impeachable under the sun for a United States president, if you look at what the founders were worried about, it's foreign this interference. Is it. It's not. This is it. It's not necessarily. And I'm not giving Bill Clinton an apology, you know, a, a pass in any way. But it's not lying under oath. It is the f- interference from foreign governments, and we are going to see more and more and more of that. So um, let's move on, though. Let's move on to the State of the Union next. Um, what did you think of the whole experience of the State of the Union this week? Okay, I have to admit, I did not watch the entire thing. I watched most of the beginning and then the end. I skipped over the Rush Limbaugh Medal of Freedom. Uh, we'll come back to that in a second. But what I will say, what was interesting, um, is the speech itself. If you, if you put everything else aside and you agree or disagree with whenever a president gives a speech because you're from, from the party or, or from the opposite party, it was a pretty normal speech overall. He did that. He did that last year. He comes out and when he stays on track and does the speech as spoken, um, he's fine. I mean, he, you know, it's not that hard to give a speech. I will say he got tired. If you look at that speech, speaking, doing a monologue for an hour and 37 minutes or however long it was, I think it was hour 27 is what it ended up being just short of Bill Clinton's longest, which was an hour 29. It's hard to talk for that long and to stand there for that long. And as that hour and 29 minutes went along, as he got to the end, he was really kind of saying like this. He didn't have that last. And because he's lazy, I'm going to say that. Because he's lazy, he didn't have the discipline to rehearse the speech and rehearse the speech and rehearse the speech to build his endurance up so that when he got to the end, he could let it ride with reverie. It's a weakness on his part because he's lazy. Right. He, he, he builds off the enthusiasm of his, of his crowds when he's able to riff. Uh, and there's no this, riff. There was, right. There's, there's no riff. There's no, there, there was no riff in this situation. It was a good reality uh, show hour and a half, though. I mean, if you're just looking at it from a purely to bring, you know, it was everything from Maury Povich. It was, it was Ellen. You know, we're going to give you a free scholarship. We're going to bring back your dad from war, and we're going to let you see it on TV. And we're going to give the Medal of Freedom to Rush Limbaugh. It was a remarkable hour and 27 minutes, for sure. So he gives the Medal of Freedom to Rush Limbaugh. And, but, you know, you have a 100-year-old Tuskegee Airman in there. He could have gotten Why it. Why not? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, he could have gotten it. Uh, the the speaking speaking of that airman, yes, there sir. there was an interesting thing, and we're going to see this pattern. I think uh, that you noticed, I noticed, uh, which is this appeal to African Americans. Yeah, absolutely. Black, black unemployment. You know, he's he's going on all these things. He brings the Tuskegee Airman and, and his and his grandson who wants to be in the space force. Yep. Uh, that you know, there is something going on there with what he's trying to do. And I have a sense that this is, if we look at African-Americans who did not turn out as enthusiastically in 2016 for Hillary Clinton as they had for Barack Obama, but there is an undercurrent there among that group that you know the system has always worked against them. 
And if the Democrats end up with a nominee who they don't identify with Mm -hmm. and represents that system, you know, his appeals there would say, you know what, it's not so bad uh, right now. Van Jones on CNN made a real strong point about this after the State of the Union saying, if you take the African-American vote for granted, you're going to lose and it's it's not going to go well for you. Yep. People are either going to flip their vote or just say, you know what, it's fine. I'm just going to stay home. If you cannot get that revved up in some way. Right. right. And and what we're seeing out of the Iowa caucus results where only 170,000 people showed up, which How is low the, is that? How low that, is that's, that? That's the same as it was four years ago. That's not good. Um, uh, but it was uh, the prior high was 2008, uh, the Obama Clinton uh, and how many was that caucus about? and that was two hundred and forty thousand. Wow, that's a huge now, difference. Right, so it's a big it's a big difference, which suggests that Democrats overall are not as enthusiastic about going after Donald Trump. That they're not sure that they can beat him. And if you look at African Americans, and if if somebody like Pete Buttigieg ends up getting the nomination, who they don't have a lot of affection for. Yep, they that's the one say, I was yeah, thinking you know, about too. You know, I don't think it'll, you know, I don't think it'll be much better under Buttigieg. It's not great under Trump. I don't like Trump, but you know, we've been living generations where we've gotten it stuck to us. So you know, I'll just stay at home again this year, and I think that's what Donald Trump is going for. Yeah, absolutely. And and Mayor Pete last night on the CNN town hall. Uh, quick sidebar: It was about a year ago that he did his first town hall, and it was before we were doing the podcast. And I called you because we were friends, and and you were sort of a political advisor to me and I was trying to figure out hmm, should I jump in here and I called you I said this guy Mayor Pete wow boy can he talk um, and so last night was his return he's very good in that in that format excellent and you could see him really making appeals to the African American community um, really trying because so he has yeah, to we'll, we'll see what happens yeah. um, so uh, what else uh, well, did you see I think in, we have to end the the with uh, the reaction from the beginning uh, the lack of civility at the top where President Trump walks in, hands the vice president and the Speaker of the House the speech, and then uh, refuses to shake the hand of the Speaker of the House. That was that was the beginning of the war of that 90 minutes, because it was a yeah, war I'm for gonna, 90 minutes. I watched that a couple of times, um, because obviously the media made a lot out of it. And this is what I saw from my perspective, because he didn't shake Mike Pence's hand either. No. Um, and he didn't even offer. I think he didn't even see her hand. Oh, he saw. No. He he. I think this is what my thing. By I watched it a couple times. I wish we had multiple angles, like you know, in uh, in in the NFL, where, where we could have seen this in, in slow mo. But I think he was trying to avoid any eye contact anywhere near Nancy Pelosi. You missed the smirk. That, so. You missed the smirk. Oh, okay. I, you, there was a smirk attached to the turn. He handed it to her. He clearly saw her hand and just went like, you know, smirked out. Like, you think you're, I'm going to shake your hand after what you've done to me? After what yes. you've done to me? I'm going to shake your hand? No. You're lucky I'm handing you the speech, you know? Then she follows that. Typically, the Speaker of the House would say, it is of the highest honor and the greatest privilege that I get to introduce to you, the President of the United States. That's not exact, but that's the gist. And she says... Uh, Members of the of the Congress, the President of the United States, and it was like, all right, here we go. You know, yep. she's she's no joke. Then there's a moment in the speech that I saw someone else note on Twitter, and then I watched. I went back and watched it again. We we're talking about sanctuary cities. <laughs> he's talking about California, and sort of saying that California is the cesspool. Whatever he says that he that he says when he says what he says, 
And she, her mouth just drops open in shock and awe and looks at her kids in the house and just like, can you believe he's saying this? Can you believe he's saying this? Which then leads us to the last moment, which is a moment that people were talking about. And when it happened, I laughed out loud, not thinking necessarily immediately of what the repercussions of the incident might be. But when she started, I was like, did she just rip up that speech? And I went back, I was like, Nicole, she just ripped up that speech. And then I'm watching, and then I'm like, no, no, no. She didn't just rip it up once. She ripped it up five times. Right. So five. You make you, so you would not miss it. You are not going to miss it. And she didn't rip it up in, you know, in anger. There wasn't, she was just like, matter of fact, okay, this nonsense is done. Let's get rid of it. Oh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She posted on Twitter, uh, big eyes, <laughs> and, and, a, and a clip of that. And that's that's where I kind of landed on. I was like, eh, it's too far to the left for me. For me. For me. I thought it was... Anyway, but moving on. Let's move on. So that's the, that was... The, oh, I want to say this one thing. There was one moment about an hour into the speech where he was really getting tired. He had a line that just made me laugh again, made me laugh, saying, love that dwells in the human heart. And I just went, what? You can't say that. You can't talk about love that dwells on the human heart. That's not your brand, buddy. That's not what you're about. And we're going to get to that in a minute now because we're going to get to um, the East Room speech. So right. the East Room speech happened yesterday. We're, we, are, we are recording this on Friday at 11 a.m. And yesterday in the East Room, the president came out and gave his, his response to the impeachment. Right, which is the love that dwells in the human heart became... These people are evil and corrupt who are going after me. Yeah. Anybody who goes after me is evil and corrupt. Evil Schiff, corrupt Pelosi. Uh, evil Schiff. A different, different tone entirely. The tone that we would expect. But what was, what was strange about it is that it was this strange pep rally. I'm, I was less concerned about his behavior because it's what you would expect from Donald Trump. Uh, but more about that room was packed with sycophants who were willing to go along with him regardless of what he said. I mean, the break and the breakdown of norms that he was advocating, because he basically said, anybody who is not with me at this point is going to pay. Yeah, head on a pike. Going back to the impeachment trial, when Adam Schiff said there's going to be the head on the pike, well, the head on the pike is there, and we see it now in Mitt Romney. It was interesting that as he was going on praise with everybody, one person he didn't praise, let's see if this plays out in any way over the course of the next couple of months, was Lindsey Graham. He did not mention Lindsey Graham's name. Hmm. Um, but he did mention Matt Gates's name, which I thought was interesting. A, a, a friend of mine, a fan of the show, uh, Paul Spore, who's the host of a very good fantasy baseball podcast called Sleeper on the Bus with uh, Justin Mason and Jason Collette, other listeners of our show, he texted me. He said, you know, you keep talking about Matt Gates as sort of this, like, interesting, dangerous, uh, like, powerful guy. And, and, and Paul said, I just see him as a clown. And I want to I concur that. He is a clown. He just has no shame. And that's why he's dangerous. I just want to make that clear about Matt Gates. I, I'm not a fan of his. I don't think that he brings uh, positivity to the nation in his service, um, even though he did vote against the War Powers Act. But that was what was interesting, was that Trump gave him a shout-out even after Gates voted against him. That was that was that that caught my eye. You had a, a ridiculous point about Scalise, um, Steve Scalise, who was uh, shot in the softball 
uh, shooting of a number of years ago and almost died. And you noted something that the president talked about, about Scalise. Right. So um, I, I don't even want to pull the recording on this because I don't think it deserves to be heard again. Okay. And I think a lot of people have actually uh, heard about this, uh, which is that he talked about how he went in and Scalise's wife was uh, beside herself. With, you know, she was upset she didn't know what was going to happen. And then he just went on this whole riff about most wives would just say, yeah, I, I, he's, he's doing okay right now and, and leave the hospital. I got to get home. And then he kept going on and on about this. And he's like, she really and, cares okay, about it. All right. All right. So that's Donald Trump. But everybody, including Scalise, everybody in that room just laughing along with this. Well, that's, he's, he's, is, is, was more telling to me than, than anything else. Just, just, this isn't, this isn't even the norms of constitutional behavior. This is just the norms of human interaction. No, we don't, we don't, we're not playing within those norms anymore at all. So that it doesn't surprise me. Uh, it saddens me. There are some senators in that room who I used to have a certain amount of respect for. I didn't see Ben Sass there. Ben Sass wasn't there. Ben Sass, who, um, who is a disgrace, is an absolute disgrace, Ben Sass. I, I just because, as I said last week, I'm going to say it as long as I can. He he could have been part of the solution, and now he has no say, none. He he wrote a book in 2015, late 2015, about how we as parents should be more conscious with our children, and we as human beings in America should be kinder with each other. And it was in response to Donald Trump. And what does he do? He just gets in line. Sass Ben Sass. Ben Sass. Yep. All right. Hmm. All right. Sorry. So, so how do you think that? <laughs> Doctor, what is the prognosis for the patient? Well, the fact that Vindman has, is now being fired, which is new news this morning. Um, Colonel Vindman, who was so brave and a former guardian of the week uh, for our show, is now being released, gives us some indication of where the patient is at. That being said, last week you called the patient brain dead. It was very painful. Uh, I had listeners who reached out to me going, it's really not, oh, come on, let's not give up. And I agree, especially because of Mitt Romney, Senator Mitt Romney this week. The brain stem is not gone. The body is still alive. It is more alive this week than it was last. And it is because of Mitt Romney. There shows there is some fight left in this republic because he had no reason to do it. It's going to make his life, his children's life, his grandchildren's life, they are, th their life is so much harder because of what Mitt Romney chose to do based on, and we haven't really gone into this, but based on his faith with God, his idea that I have made a vow, I took an oath in front of God and you're asking me to reject that and I cannot do it. When he's giving the speech, he almost broke down in tears. That And Chris Murphy, who sat in the room and broke down into tears. Brian Chats from Hawaii broke down into tears. I watched it. I watched the interview that he had with Chris Wallace and I'm just like, oh, Mitt Romney, you are everything we could have dreamed that you would be. It is not a terrible surprise. It is uh, what they say in, in Aristotle, I believe it was maybe have been Sophocles, I apologize, but um, the surprising inevitability, if you look back to his speech in March of 2016, talking about him, he stepped forward for the Republic and in, in such a unique way that I have to believe, I have to believe the Republic has a chance. Well, I, I, I think it's a very emotional 
reaction to, to Romney's speech, an appropriate emotional reaction to Romney's speech. But if I take the emotions out of it and I look at what happened in the East Room, I can't get off my diagnosis from last week. That in the end, if we're talking about the Constitution itself, I don't know how much longer it will be, whether it's going to be five years, 10 years, 25 years, but it's not, it can't survive this. So I'm saying that the patient is still brain dead, still in that, <laughs> that comatose state. However, what Romney's statement gave to me, the, the thought, the hope was somebody out there is working on a brain transplant. Ah, <laughs> and it's not going to, the patient oh, is not going to, patient's not going to be the same as it has, it has been in the past, but maybe we uh, can come out the other end of uh, this look with, at a, you. with a new look. Look at what look. you did. There's no such thing as a brain transplant, but we're going to let you not use yet. it. Not well, yet. Hey man, I love that. Oh, good right. on you. Did you think that so up I'm, beforehand? I'm, so I, I, I have a little bit more hope for the good. long-term good. long-term future. The short-term future still not looking good. Uh, but, but wow. The long-term future maybe we have these state maybe these statesmen still exist out there. <laughs> statesmen and women it, it, still it, exist out there who will come forward in the end and help rebuild whatever our new republic is going to look like. Well, Murray, I tell you, after 27 episodes and and moving forward 27 to 270 or 2,700 more. That is the biggest uh, laugh you've given me on this show, and I'm delighted by it. So, okay, let's, before we turn to our hot take segment, let's just check in with, I just want to say this, the number one pollster in America by 538, which is you, which is Monmouth University. Every week we get to talk to the number one, and we get to, I get to talk to, and our listeners get to listen to the number one pollster in America talk about how, what he sees with polls this week. So, Let's talk about what you're seeing with polls this week. Well, let's talk about what happened in Iowa, because it's too soon for impeachment reaction, because nobody's polled that. In fact, we just started our impeachment reaction poll, which we'll talk about on next week's episode. Uh, But uh, what happened in Iowa and what our poll in New Hampshire shows, so I think that's where we're going to focus. So as you recall, our Iowa poll, my Iowa poll, had Joe Biden doing a little better uh, than he actually did in the end. A lot of polls had Bernie Sanders doing well, which he did, but no polls had Pete Buttigieg doing well. And I think this gets to the point of what is going on in Iowa. So few people vote in Iowa uh, out of the eligible voters. You know, turnout is not good there. It's 171,000 that, that not only do Iowa voters not represent Democrats nationwide, but Iowa caucus goers, the people who turn up at the caucus, don't even represent Iowa Democrats. And so small changes in turnout can lead you to the kind of kerfuffle that we got out of Iowa. And I think it's time to end the caucuses as they are now as a selection process for the primary, because it's not really a primary. And Iowa has shown you that you can't do that. And I want to give a shout out to uh, my friends at the Marist Poll, who do a podcast called uh, Poll Hub, which I was on. Uh, and we, we really talked about this. So I'm not going to go much more into this, but if you really want to understand why Iowa and what happened there and the polling problems of polling a caucus, um, you can go to that poll. But let me turn to what happened there and what happened, what we're seeing in New Hampshire is that we're seeing a Democratic electorate that is not as excited as we thought they would be about taking out Donald Trump. I think a lot of Democrats stayed at home in Iowa and might stay at home in New Hampshire because they feel that 
it's probably going to be a Donald Trump re-election, so why bother? And this gets back to what we were talking about, the African-American vote and what Donald Trump is going for. Yeah, keep looking at that inevitability that that the Democrats cannot choose a good challenger to Donald Trump. And I think that's what we're seeing so far. What what are your thoughts about how that looks going forward? Uh, It's very scary. Um, I would say there's a lot of challenges right now in the Democratic Party. Uh, Mayor Pete is a very capable person and I mean, extremely capable. If one wants to look at the pendulum shift, as he says, I mean, Andrew Yang makes a joke about what could be more different than, you know, uh, an Asian man who loves to read, uh, no, who loves math. Mayor Pete is the direct opposite of President Trump. The problem is he is not liked by a large contingent of the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party, and Bernie Sanders is not liked by a large contingent of the Democratic Party. Um, and so it's a it's a dangerous situation right now. Uh, I still think that there's a, a, a better than better than a small chance that we're going to see a brokered convention. Uh, I don't know that that's a terrible thing. Even um, I think that that might open the door for Bloomberg. Yeah. So uh, what we have at our at our poll because Bloomberg isn't in our poll in New Hampshire because he's, because he's not, not on, fighting not for on it. The, he's not on the ballot. His name is oh, on go. the ballot, and you can't even you can't even write him in. Um, He's going to be something that we turn to if these things don't pan on on Super Tuesday. So in our New Hampshire poll, we have right now, this is before the final weekend. uh, Now, was this before or after Iowa, the results of Iowa? This was mostly after Iowa. And again, the problem is, as we were polling, we still didn't quite know the Iowa results. Yeah, but we had the vibe of Iowa. I mean, we we understood that that Biden, Biden is down, down, down. So we had Sanders at 24, Buttigieg at 20. Biden at 17 and sliding. Sliding. Warren sliding at 13. Uh, Klobuchar doing a little better at 9% than she had been in the past because of, you know, her her stronger showing in Iowa than she had been given credit for. What's happening there is that we have three centrist candidates and two liberal candidates. Clearly, Sanders is gaining at the expense of Warren, but the three centrist candidates are still splitting the vote among themselves. Buttigieg is looking a little stronger, Biden a little weaker, but there's still Klobuchar in there who might take some of that centrist vote away. So that it, so so Sanders could be looking at a strong win. Uh, and I think the debate that we have coming up tonight, we're recording this on Friday, as we said, and a lot of that sinking in over the weekend will play a, a large role in what happens in the end on Tuesday. But I think that that's going to lead us into our hot take segment, because why don't we talk about the candidates, which yep. is what we plan to do. So this week, we're going to take our hot take segment and look at where the Democratic field stands. So we're going to give each candidate 90 seconds. And when you hear this sound, it'll be time to move on to the next candidate. So, Ian, who's up first? Uh, our first one up is Senator Bernie Sanders. So Bernie Sanders has been gaining in the polls, has been gaining in all the New Hampshire polls. Uh, won or tied for first uh, in Iowa uh, in a low turnout. He's got his base, and that's what we're seeing in our polling, that he's got his base, but it's not clear that he's got much beyond that base. But as long as the rest of the field is split, he can continue to win these some of these early contests. Yeah, also something came out today, and I don't know why it took quite so long to get these numbers so clearly out, which is that the number of Bernie Sanders supporters in the Wisconsin, Pennsylvania states in the middle in the Midwest um, in 2016, hundreds of 118,000, I believe, voted for Trump instead of for Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. And had Bernie 
not, had Bernie gotten behind Hillary in a more substantial way, it's very likely that Hillary would have won based on the right. numbers that, that we just saw. So it, the fear then becomes, it's like he Sanders almost has, he, he, he's very dangerous because if he's not the nominee, you're going to lose Democratic voters once again to Donald Trump. But if he is the nominee, you're going to lose, you know, middle of the road voters. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, that's... Bernie Sanders, other than supporters of like Tulsi Gabbard and some of those who are on the fringe, Bernie Sanders supporters are, are the, the largest group who have people who will not support a Democratic nominee that they think is too establishment. Yep, indeed. All right. So next one up is the rising star, Pete Buttigieg. Well, you know, it, it's one of these situations where as an actor, you audition and you audition and you audition for a role and you're up against all these other people. And really it comes down to, at the end of the day, who is best for the role in the moment where you're in front of everybody who's making the decisions. And what Pete Buttigieg has been able to do is get into the room with people and they like him. They like that he speaks seven languages, that he's a concert pianist, that he was a man of the military, He has so, that he was a Rhodes Scholar. All of these things about him are very, uh, very popular. He's a popular fellow, except for places in the party where he's not popular at all. It's a, it's a tricky situation. We've got lots of quarters and no dollar bills. Yeah. He's getting a blowback from Warren and Klobuchar supporters in New Hampshire because of his declaration of victory on caucus night in Iowa. And I think what we're seeing in terms of the reaction against him is really about the idea that this guy's an upstart, uh, that he has really not been uh, in the party itself, but he no. He, he kind of frames himself as being, you know, part. Uh, why of is the, he of not the party. part of the party? Why is he yeah. not part well, of? The party? I, I think it's just his, his age. It, yeah, but it's his age. The fact that his he's, age. he's been been the mayor of a small city, so he ha he hasn't built the relationships across the country over time that they think is necessary to do that. So he's seen as this upstart who is positioning himself as a, one of the old hands of the party. Uh, that can take it to the next level. So. <laughs> he can't be an old hand. He's yeah. 38 years I old. Know. I mean, he's anything but old. Um, okay, let's move on to Elizabeth Warren. Where do you see things for for uh, Senator Warren right now? Man, Elizabeth Warren was flying high in September. Shot down in February. Uh, is ah, she was shot? No, she was flying high in August and shot down in September at that debate that we talked about. Right. Well, times. yeah. Well, no, her polls were still. She was still leading the polls in September. It was after that debate at the end of September, and then she started coming down. The bit, the problem with with Elizabeth Warren versus uh, Bernie Sanders is that Bernie Sanders just promises big change. Elizabeth Warren promised big change plus a pragmatic approach to getting there, and when she was finally called on the pragmatic approach, she couldn't deliver. Uh, she couldn't convince voters that she could do that. And so she, you know, half of her appeal just disappeared. What we saw, and we've seen this in our Iowa poll, is while she's still doing decently among traditional liberal Democrats, she's lost those independent liberals. Mm -hmm. uh, and they that's those are the folks who swung towards How did Bernie she Sanders. do in second choices in Iowa? Was she high? Because I know Buttigieg was high in the second choice. Right. No, she, she wasn't high in a second yeah. choice because... She was viable in most of the precincts that she went into, and and her her if she wasn't, then you know there was no need for her to her supporters to go anywhere, and the other supporters would be Bernie Sanders, and Bernie Sanders is viable in every single single district. Yeah. So what happened? It was the Klobuchar and Biden supporters who were not uh, viable in those 
precincts. And where did the Biden people go? Did they, most they of all the went Biden to, people? They went to Buttigieg. They went to Buttigieg. Okay. Yeah. 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 Makes perfect sense. Okay. Uh, all right. So next up is Joe Biden. Poor Joe Biden, man. Ooh, boy. You know, that, that was, uh, I, you have to wonder how much the impeachment trial hurt Joe Biden. You know, like, oh, are we going to have to deal with this during, you know, Hunter is how much did Hunter Biden hurt Joe Biden? That's something that, that's something I'd like to see polled. How much did that hurt Joe Biden? Because the numbers, I mean, where did he end up? There was a period there where he was at like 13%. I think he jumped up to 16%. Yep. But he was talking about, you know, I might not win Iowa, but it'll be close. It'll be 22, 21, 2019. So it'll sort of be like a tie. He said, look, if I come in fourth and I've got like 12 or 13 or 14%, that would really hurt. Well, that's kind of what happened. The front runner, Joe Biden in Iowa, got was fourth place. It was yeah. not a good look for him. No, and if he loses, he comes in third or fourth in New Hampshire and third or fourth in Nevada. I don't think a South Carolina win is really going to help him all that much. Uh, he's going to run think, out of money. Uh, yeah, and and yeah, and he, he's already got problems with that. Uh, I keep thinking, and I've been thinking this all along. This race would have looked entirely different, and Joe, if Joe Biden didn't enter it. And what I mean is, we probably hmm. wouldn't be looking at Sanders, Warren, Buttigieg, Klobuchar. We would probably see in that mix a Cory Booker or a Kamala Harris. No, we would see, no, I think Mike Bloomberg would have been in from the jump. Oh, yep, that, that too, that too. I think Bloomberg would have been in from the jump and it would have been Bloomberg, Buttigieg, Sanders, Well, and guess Warren. what? Guess what? We're talking about Mike Bloomberg next. Okay, well, not next, because next we have Amy Klobuchar. Oh, oh right. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, Amy Klobuchar. Uh, I've, I've been interested in her campaign all along. This is what I was talking about. I think if... Mike Bloomberg didn't jump in the race early. Joe Biden did never got into the race. I think Amy Klobuchar would have been polling higher from the centrist point of view to begin with. Yeah, uh, you know, maybe. all those appeals that she had about, you know, Minnesota, she she won every red county. She outpolled Hillary Clinton in all those all throughout Minnesota. Uh, I think we would have the press would have been paying more attention to her without Biden in the race. And that's key. Remember, this is what's key. The press can only pay attention to a few people. Once Biden got into the race, he was the front runner. And that's who they're paying attention to. Uh, and that's where most voters get their information. It kind of trickles down from what the media is framing this as. And so I think um, while she did do well in Iowa based on expectations, and, yeah, she, not could, well and she could get 10% in New Hampshire, but again, yeah. then she, she's playing the role of spoiler on the centrist side rather than actually being a viable candidate. I think that her jump off where the, the articles that came out about her dealing with her staff really did not help. Um, I think there's a certain amount of misogyny that's attached to this situation. Um, I think the fact that she's a woman, she's not getting as much uh, That's why they're positive. all annoyed at Buttigieg. That's part well, of it. Yeah. But Buttigieg, but also Buttigieg is better in yeah. terms of- He is of a better not, communicator. He's a better communicator by a Big, by, by a large margin. That's something we talk a lot about on the show. All right. So I jumped on this earlier, got out of order, but uh, Mike Bloomberg, what do you think? Uh, well, uh, first thing I want to say about Mike Bloomberg, he, and because of you, have, my relationship with my dog has changed. Because now, <laughs> when I see my dog, I give him the Mike Bloomberg shake of the snout, and all of a sudden, this dog is all over me. It's like, he's like, yes, you finally figured out how to... So that that's just a little sidebar. Bloomberg is in really good position. That was the thing that I thought coming out of Iowa. The winner of Iowa was Mike Bloomberg. We'll see what happens in New Hampshire. If Biden does fall out of the race, which I do think is possible, I, I think it's possible that he doesn't end up winning South Carolina if he really drops in New Hampshire. 
then then it's done for Joe Biden, unfortunately for Joe Biden and for his supporters. But I think what's opens- I think what's interesting about him is that uh, you know he's starting to get endorsements even before mm-hmm. you know, like almost counting Joe Biden out from traditional centrists. Now I don't give a lot of credence to endorsements from high level officials because they don't usually don't turn into votes, but this is sending a message that a lot of folks don't have faith in Joe Biden. So we've got Gina Raimondo, the governor of Rhode Island. Big star. Mikey Sherrill, who's a, a congresswoman from New Jersey, one of those, considered one of the leading rising stars of those moderate folks who, who flipped districts in 2018. Mm-hmm. Also, former Secretary of the Navy, Richard Spencer, mm-hmm. endorsed Bloomberg. Remember, Richard Spencer was kicked, a, he resigned basically because Trump overruled him on that Navy SEAL who did heinous right. things and they were going right, to right, right. Marshall. So... You know, but anyway, he he went with Bloomberg. Bloomberg has $48 billion or more, and he is going to spend that money whether he's the nominee or not. Bloomberg, please come help. I'm not saying get the nomination, but please continue to help. All right. So our final one is on the other side of the aisle. Uh, People may not realize, but there is a competitive or contested primary on the Republican side uh, with uh, Bill Weld and Joe Walsh, who each got about 1% in Iowa. And Joe Walsh has suspended his campaign now. Yeah, Joe Walsh had an interesting experience at the Iowa caucus uh, this past Tuesday. He went in in front of 3,000 Trump supporters, tried to advocate for himself and against President Trump, and was shouted down completely. And watching this film of Joe Walsh trying to deal with this energy um, and this hatred that he was receiving He walked away from that, and I saw an interview with him where he said, look, it's a cult, and there's nothing that can be done. Um, And what he has decided to do is dedicate himself to try to find the uh, moderate Republicans and independents and try to convince them that the republic is more important than anything. Uh, He's come out and said that he would support whoever the Democratic candidate is because he would rather have a socialist than a dictator. Uh, Joe Walsh fought a valiant fight coming from a, a really tricky background with some horrible things that he said through the years, but really fought the good fight. Bill Crystal helped put him, uh, you know, get him out there and help put the money out there. I don't know how much value he, he added, but I know he certainly tried. What do you think? Yeah, I think, you know, the role that he was supposed to play is just to remind Republicans about what they used to stand for as a party. Um, and as he saw in his experience in Iowa, ain't going to happen. No. All right. So let's move on now to the Guardian of the Week. It was it was funny because you texted me uh, two days ago and I hadn't seen the Mitt Romney news yet. And you said, well, I guess we have our Guardian of the Week. And I was yeah. like, I ah, texted I you know. as I, as he was making the speech. Oh, OK. As he was making the speech, I texted you. We got the, we got our Guardian of the Week. This is no surprise. Was it? Anybody. Because I think it was before because I think I thought I saw the speech live. I think no. it was. No. No. no? All right. It was, it was oh. I was watching it. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, our guardian of the week is supposed to be somebody who puts their own personal political uh, fortunes aside for yeah. the benefit of the Republic. And Mitt Romney did it this week. Oh, my gosh, yes. Um, and a guardian of the week, he, you know, I think he was our guardian of the week last week, too. Um, and, uh, you know, that moment, and I talked about it earlier, where he choked up and paused when referring to his faith. If you, I, I had my, my older son said, what's going on in the Senate so I, last night we sat down and we watched the Mitt Romney speech. I think it's important. Yeah, I think, I think everybody, should, it's about eight minutes. It, yeah. Everybody should go watch it. Um, yeah. And, if, and, you know, you talked about the religious aspects because clearly that's where he got choked up when he referred to his faith and then he took an oath before God and then he stopped and 
He just couldn't kind of compose eight, himself, and you could hear it in his voice. Eight seconds? Continue. Eight seconds? Because That's when the, my wife started crying, yes. watching. Yeah, because it he was, is clearly answering to a higher authority because he believes that our Constitution and our system of government is answerable to a higher authority and inspired by In fact, he used, you pointed out, he used those Washingtonian terms uh, that our Constitution was inspired by providence. That was General Washington's word. He didn't talk about God often, but he always spoke of providence and that we are a nation um, that is inspired by providence. And to see Mitt Romney, I mean, that's why he got the the top. I mean, we set rules on in the theater. You're a, here's how you got to do it in the theater. You got to set the rules for your audience. You got to let your audience know from the first moment of the show, this is what you're going to get. Okay, it's going to be it's going to be this kind of a show. But once you establish those rules and you get into it and those rules are firmly established, then you can break the rules, right? Yeah. And that's interesting. It's interesting to break the rules. Well, that's what we did on our show this week is we've established the rules. Every week we start out with a George Washington quote and this week because of the courage of Mitt Romney. And, and it's not, yeah, it's not just his courage because that's why I want people to, to, to go and watch this. It was his humility in, ma- in making this stand. And I want to play a, a little clip from it because I think this really underlines that he was not doing this with bravado. He was doing this because he really felt that this was what was demanded of him. With my vote, I will tell my children and their children that I did my duty to the best of my ability, believing that my country expected it of me. I will only be one name among many, no more, no less, to future generations of Americans who look at the record of this trial. They will note merely that I was among the senators who determined that what the president did was wrong, grievously wrong. We are all footnotes at best in the annals of history, But in the most powerful nation on earth, the nation conceived in liberty and justice, that distinction is enough for any citizen. He is going to be some footnote in history. Yeah, that's not, he's not a footnote, he's a chapter. And when I spoke, I'm just talking about my mom again. Um, When I spoke to her this morning, she said, well, I guess I know who your guardian of the week is going to be. I said, yeah, yeah, for sure. And she said, she made this point, and I think it's worth speaking. She said, because today actually is the anniversary of my father's death. My father oh, died. sorry about that. No, that's okay. He died 10 years ago. Was it 10 years ago? Too? No, no, I'm sorry. No, it was seven years ago. My father died seven years ago today. So obviously my father is very much on my mind, on my mother's mind. And she said, take a look at the fathers of the president and of Mitt Romney. Mm-hmm. Look at what George Romney said. This is a quote of George Romney. I'm concerned about truth and credibility in government, George Romney said. And Donald Trump's father was not a man of kindness. So you do, we do see that sons follow in the footsteps of their fathers. And uh, Mitt Romney made, if his father is looking down, he made his father very proud. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Uh, Last week, we decided to end with a final thought. And I think you have one for us this week. I do. Uh, one of my oldest friends in the world, a man named Jay Reese, uh, also a fan of the show. We're talking about all the fans of the show. Um, he is writing a, uh, a television show right now for HBO. It's in it's in development about the Constitution. So he has been living in the Republic for, for a very long time. He listens very closely. He always says, just stick to the Republic, stick to the Republic. Great. 
uh, he called me the other week, the, the day after, and, and he was trying to explain to me, he was saying, look, the reason this went badly is because the the framers had did, did not account for political parties. That's why none of this is going to work. Because back then, the senators would have been more beholden to the Senate than to a political party or to the executive branch. And the, the, the reality that the Congress back then was more powerful than the president. And the executive was supposed to fulfill the Congress's wishes. And what he was talking about is something that we've talked about on the show, that there should be a new constitution. Because right now the parties check each other. And that's why nothing works. It wasn't designed for parties. Everyone is just protecting the president and no one can govern. Right. So saying going back to looking at, is, it gives us an idea as to why we've run into this brick wall. Yep. Absolutely. And I think we'll be talking more about this and what the way of the future is uh, in future episodes. We need to find a new generation of founding mothers and founding fathers. Yep. That's what we need. And a brain transplant. Oof. And a brain transplant. We got, somebody's <laughs> okay. got to be working on that constitutional brain transplant that we're going to need in the, in the near future. Not Ben okay. Sass. Not Ben Sass. <laughs> no. You don't get to come to the table, pal. Sorry. You had your shot. Or Marco Rubio. All right. Okay. Okay. So that's it for this week's edition of Guardians of the Republic. If you have any suggestions for a Guardian of the Week or uh, any other topics uh, for our hot takes, please reach out to us on Twitter at GuardiansOTR. And please make sure to subscribe to get the latest episodes on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. And please give us a rating and tell your friends so others can find us. Also, check out our website at guardians-republic.com. Thanks for joining us, and we will be back with a new episode next week. See you then. Thank you.